Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today's episode is a departure from my typical episodes because I read this incredible book by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Andrea Elliott, and I just wanted everybody to experience it. It's called Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival, and Hope in an American City. And I just want you to hear from Andrea and get inspired to read this book and just get outside of yourself and dive into this book. It's heartbreaking, but it's also incredibly hopeful. And so we had this incredible conversation. Please have a listen and tell me what you think. I love hearing from you. You can DM me on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast. And please don't forget to sign up for DrAliza.Bulletin.com. And for premium subscribers, I'm going to be doing a four-session, four-week mindfulness and parenting course starting in May. I hope you will join so we can have an opportunity to connect and interact and have a listen. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and write a little review. We're going to start this episode with Andrea reading from the prologue of this book to sort of set this, the context. Then we'll dive into resilience, witness, story, and the invisible child. October 6th, 2015. First, they came for Papa. The eight-year-old boy asked no questions. He knew to be quiet in the presence of strangers. Two women led him to a silver van. Papa looked out the window as the ignition started. There was his school, a rectangle of brick that got smaller and smaller as the van pulled away. Eleven miles south, another van collected Papa's brother from his school and four sisters from their schools, delivering all six siblings to the same place. The Staten Island office of New York City's Child Protection Agency. Only the youngest child remained. The van turned east, heading up Laurel Avenue, toward a white clapboard duplex with a boarded up window. There, on the sidewalk, stood baby Lily with her father. The toddler hid behind his legs. As the van slowed to a halt, the father wiped his face. His daughter was too little to understand what was happening, that the people in the van were child protection workers. 
that the court had ordered them to take Lily and her siblings away, that the parents were being accused of neglect, that they had neglected, among other things, the condition of their home. A moment passed. The van door opened. A caseworker stepped onto the sidewalk and paused. The father gathered Lily up and placed her in the van, promising to come for her tomorrow. That evening, the siblings were transferred to a facility in Lower Manhattan, formerly the site of the Bellevue Hospital morgue. They stepped through a metal detector, trading their street clothes for matching maroon jumpsuits. Their father's words kept ringing. Whatever happens, stay together. That's the prologue. At least part of it. So a couple of incredible setups here. Just not knowing where to begin. The Just in talking about Child Protective Services, which is in and of itself so deeply problematic. And just the idea that you could imagine the trauma of separation like that. And just that you could imagine the history and the generations of trauma that ensue sets up so many different conversations for this story. And I I almost don't know which one to choose or how how to go in there. But how how did you think of like how do I tell this story? And what did you want to get across? The story showed itself to me. I was there that day. I saw it happen. I had been following the life of this family for three years at that point and had gotten to know them very, very well. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I couldn't believe it. So at every turn over the eight years that I followed this family, I felt that the story just revealed itself, revealed itself, showed me a whole new arena each time that I would have to scramble to learn quickly in real time. I knew nothing about, really very little about the child protection system. Uh, at the time that this happened, I thought I was writing primarily about child poverty and homelessness. And the story was focused on one of the eight siblings mentioned in the prologue, Dasani, and and continued to be throughout. It was really her story. But when I met her, she and her parents and siblings were together. So really, it began as a look at what it's like to be growing up desperately poor in one of the richest cities in the world and what that encounter between rich and poor, between black and white, between uh, just the divide that so often defines New York City life, what that was like to be growing up inside of. That was my, my, my goal at the outset was to try to get inside this one girl's head and see this this other world. And, and then all these things happened, things um, that were impossible to shake, like that day and the trauma that was inflicted on those children that day and in subsequent months and years, but also just remarkable 
acts of family courage and resilience and love and bonds that uh, will stay with me more powerfully than anything else I saw. Did you feel like the way you watched this family get separated in this way, did it give you a different lens? Because I think we make flippant jokes about, you know, child protective services are coming because I did the X or we assume collectively as a society, if you have been neglectful, that you didn't love your children. And the story is quite a bit different. And I'm I'm just curious, I don't want to depersonalize it because it was such a personal story. And also I wonder if there is a broader way to take that story and have us rethink what we what we do when we judge or when we see the other side of the story, the, the parts of the story where a child gets a scholarship, the parts of a story where all the stuff that makes us feel more settled in our understanding of a tragic story is, is typically when there's hopeful, happy stuff that goes alongside that. And I'm just curious what happened to you that day and if that lens changed? I mean, I know it did, <laughs> but I'm curious how you how it did for you. So many things to say. <laughs> you know, as you were speaking, I was brought back to 2016 when Trump was elected and then the crisis at the border with migrant children being separated from their parents and the uproar, Mm -hmm. the uproar, the understandable public condemnation that followed where there seemed to be a real kind of across the board understanding, regardless of your politics, that to separate a child from a parent is an act of violence. It is tremendously traumatic and it has lifelong consequences. And I think people understood that, the gravity of that. What I didn't know then and what I came to learn very quickly though, was that this was happening every single day in America and it's been happening for decades in black and brown communities predominantly. The child protection system impacts disproportionately those communities and the vast majority of the cases involve neglect charges, 75% of the cases across the country. And in New York City, the year that the children were taken in front of me in 2015, only 7% of the cases that year involved abuse. Now, these words, abuse, neglect, even words like foster care, child protection, they kind of float around and people have their assumptions about what they mean. And I think I was one of those people who sort of just put foster kids in a certain category coming into this, not knowing, because these kids, by the way, weren't foster kids when I met them. This was my family I was following as a journalist. When I say my family, the family I had chosen to write about, in addition to being a mother myself and having my own family at home. And so I watched them become foster children. I watched them join this population that was so foreign to me. And suddenly it wasn't foreign. It was, oh, these are the kids I know. Wait, what? And the thing that I think I am 
most struck by looking back on my earlier self and the misconceptions or sort of vague notions I had of the system was how little I understood, for example, the difference between neglect and abuse. You're right. You're absolutely right that people tend to see these children as coming from parents who don't love them or from quote unquote bad homes. But let's look at what neglect means. Neglect means failure to provide, whereas abuse is intention to harm. We all know what abuse looks like. Neglect is you're not doing something. Abuse is you are. Nobody wants to see children who are abused staying in unsafe, abusive homes. Absolutely not. And those are child separations that are necessary. I don't think anyone would argue with that. 7% of the cases were abuse cases, and some of them were mixed with neglect. Actually, only 2% were abuse only in New York City that year. 93% were neglect. And neglect, what you have is failure to provide things like housing, which is how my book begins, that they were being charged with neglecting their home and by extension, their children. This was Section 8 housing. So there was a city agency that was responsible for fixing the dilapidated conditions that this family was forced to live in, and they didn't do their job. But who wound up being blamed for it but the parents? This is far more typical than you realize. Failure to provide adequate clothing, failure to provide adequate uh, food. Uh, Sometimes it's supervision. And often enough, it is true that there is the presence of other problems, for instance, substance abuse slash addiction uh, among the parents. But what you see most often with neglect is that it is a symptom of poverty. It is, as one lawyer put it to me early on, code for poverty. And what I think I found, having spent a lot of time with families who were in the system fighting these charges, trying to get their kids back, is that they were being punished for the problems of poverty and that these were loving homes and these were parents who wanted nothing more than to show up for their children, to keep their children. And it's just astonishing to me the amount of power that an agency like the Administration for Children's Services in New York City, ACS, or other CPS uh, agencies around the country wield. I can't think of a greater form of power than the power to separate a mother from her child or father from his child. So my book looks at Invisible Child kind of follows the family through this system and through other systems and through a long court fight that in part was fought by Dasani in court when she stood up to to defend her mother, to get back with her mother, to be reunited. So, and there is hope at the end of the story, but it was a deeply painful thing to watch and a very representative, I would argue, uh, case, not an outlier. This is something that happens every single day. And now I want to take a quick break so I can tell you about my sponsors. This is an ad about mostly a really awesome bra, (laughs) the classic t-shirt bra from Third Love, because it is so comfortable and so thin, has memory foam cups to give you everyday comfort and support, great straps that don't slip. It's smoothing. It's available in wild sizes, half sizes. I love it so much. So I wanted to tell you guys about it because it's very exciting when there's something comfortable. I am a take your bra off when you get home kind of gal. Is that oversharing? You don't need to take this one off. So I love that. And also bra sizes change 
up to six times in your lifetime. So we tend to keep our bras and then end up wearing the wrong size bra, especially after you've had kids. So one thing I love about Third Love is that they give you a fitting room quiz and they help you find a bra that actually fits. Then if you don't feel like it fits, you can return it for free in 60 days. Also wonderful is that Third Love is the largest donor of undergarments in the U.S., partnering with organizations across the United States. They've donated over $40 million worth of bras to help people in need. So feeling is believing. Give your boobs the 24-7 comfort and support they deserve. Upgrade your bra today and get 20% off your first order at thirdlove.com slash humans. That's 20% off at thirdlove.com slash humans. Do you feel like you've been far away from people that you love? If you are looking for an amazing Mother's Day gift, Grandmother's Day gift, Father's Day gift, I love a skylight frame. It's just a touchscreen photo frame you can email photos to, and then they appear in seconds. So for example, your mom can see your favorite moments. My mom lives very far, so I know she will be receiving a skylight digital photo frame so that she can keep up with what's happening in our day-to-day. I hope she's not listening to this, but she probably is, and I'm spoiling the surprise. It's just a great way to feel close to those you love, even though you're far away. And it's an easy, effortless setup you can do in under 60 seconds. Even a really low-tech savvy person can use it. And it looks like a real photo frame, so it looks pretty. Your satisfaction is 100% guaranteed. They'll offer you a full refund if you don't like it, and you can preload it with favorite photos for a special Mother's Day gift. And you can make it interactive because you can tap the heart button and it lets the sender know you love the photo. And now as a special holiday offer, you can get $10 off your purchase of a skylight frame when you go to skylightframe.com and enter the code HUMANS. That's right. To get $10 off your purchase of a skylight frame, just go to skylightframe.com and enter the code HUMANS. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E.com and use the code HUMANS. Because many people may not have read this book, can you just give us a little bit about Dasani? Just a little frame of this girl, and then we can continue the conversation because what I'm I'm so curious about, I, I really just want to encourage people to read this book because there's just no other way to, I mean, I don't know how you did it, but you really got into a world, I guess, for years and years and years and really helped understand, helped explain, helped. I I can't, it's like without the judgment, it seemed like you wrote this story as to tell the story, not to preach any particular lesson, but you can't help but leave with some lessons. We try most journalists to show rather than tell. I think that is the more powerful way to share a story. I want the reader to decide. I want ultimately the reader to be able to walk away and say, this is what I think, rather than being told. The lessons I think become almost overwhelmingly obvious in some cases, but I see this book as more than anything an act of witness. And when I first arrived in Dasani's life, she was 11 I had two little girls at home. I was at uh, an investigative reporter at the New York Times, and I was there to work on a project. And I came from a very different world than Dasani. She noticed that immediately about me. 
she could see my skin color. I'm white. She could see her family's African-American. She had been perpetually homeless, deeply poor. She had one of eight, she was among uh, eight siblings and two parents, all 10 of them crammed in one single room in a shelter in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. And I lived on the Upper West Side. <laughs> and the way into this story, I think you'll find interesting, especially, is that uh, I had to gain Dasani's mother's trust. And I think the way I did that was just the very fact that I am a mother. Chanel said to me, if you weren't a mother, I would never have let you near my children. And she also liked the fact that I'm Latina. And so even though my I have light skin color, and even though I, I come from a, an experience of incredible privilege that I got to go to college, got to go to graduate school, never experienced housing insecurity, we found constant points of connection. And I think that that is what I've always tried to do in my work is to you know, to look for what's universal between me and people who seem very different from me, because we are all human at the end of the day. And she liked, <laughs> Chanel would say, you're not all black because you're Latin. That was her word. And, but we did talk constantly about race in the, con in the context of our own relationship, in the context of our relationship with the city. It was just always in the conversation. And I think I saw this very much as a two-way street, my relationship with the family as I would ask them questions, they would answer and then ask me questions and I would answer. And I think that was the only way to go as deep as I wanted to go in order to access the kind of knowledge and intimacy that I hope is what you're responding to in the text. I, I really felt this incredible honor and privilege of being inside some of the most life-changing moments in this for this family you know that you're you're looking at trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma this cumulative trauma and then you have children and they experience trauma and there's there's a cycle of trauma that is part of a story of a whole of poverty but then when you think about some of the individual responsibility and you break it down, you could easily go to looking at people posting on Instagram gazillions of jokes about how much wine they're drinking during the pandemic because mom needs some support. And when it's a white mom who's got resources and and, you know, it's funny and sometimes quite charming and everybody's getting a laugh and expects that that mom's also able to take care of her kids and not like dropping them or being um, neglectful. And that story just doesn't work if it's in any other context, but certainly not a black or brown context, not a poverty context. And so all of a sudden what's funny in one context is terrifying and tragic in another context. And so I'm, and you were living in one context and witnessing and connecting with and loving in another context. So I, I'm curious, like I could see a world where you came home and 
felt like saying, you guys have no idea how easy you have it. Oh, I've if done If there's that. like any, like. <laughs> My children have grown up with this book. <laughs> My daughters were right. one and three when it began and they wow. are now 10 and 13. I, in the beginning, would come home feeling all the things you can imagine that somebody would feel in my shoes. Tremendously sad and confused, actually also about what my role should be. Uh, how is it, how is this fair that my kids have organic milk in the fridge, literally never have to worry about being cold or hungry, have a roof over their head. Um, I was married to a journalist and, you know, as journalists renting on the Upper West Side, any anyone in New York can tell you that uh, there's always a better life in New York and that it's never enough, no matter what you have. And I suddenly saw that we were so lucky to even make that joke, right? I mean, oh, we're renters and we're on, living on journalist salaries trying to raise our two kids in New York City. Compared to the way that nearly half of this city was living, which is near or below the poverty line, by the way. That is how big of a population this is. We were so lucky. And I think that that feeling of luck is what most impacted me, that just the circumstance of my birth, the fact that I was born into a certain family, a certain zip code, that just determined my fate in a completely different way than Dasani's was so astonishing. And, you know, I think I also did start to feel like I couldn't unsee the things I saw, that I would have to carry them home with me. And the person who helped me through that the most was really the example of my mother. She is a therapist and I grew up with her doing the same thing. She would come home late from her job, which was really tough. She was the mental health director at uh, Clinica del Pueblo, which is a free clinic in the Adams Morgan section of Washington, D.C., before it was gentrified, yeah. where she was working with people who were at that time dying of AIDS, uh, refugees uh, who had survived uh, atrocities in Central America. Um, she was dealing with trauma every day, and she be had become an expert in PTSD. And she would come home and I could see on her face that she had seen or heard a lot of things that day, but she wasn't going to share them with me. She was she found a way to sort of shut that off. And I think I just tried my best to do that. But what I really want to say here is, yes, you try to compartmentalize just to be able to do your work, but you also have to reckon with the fact that if it's so hard for you in your place of privilege to shut that stuff off and try to attend to your family, try to stay sane. How hard is it for the people you left behind who don't get to mm -hmm. leave? So there was really no perfect answer to how I managed that. I just knew that this was a story that I felt I needed to see through. And my kids really got to know Dasani and her siblings in part because I didn't believe I should separate them entirely. They're, they were separate worlds, but they could come together from time to time. But that was how I could make these separate parts of myself coexist in a more peaceful way, was for my, my own children to know Dasani and her, and her siblings.
That's beautiful. This book very much represents, I think, this the encounter between these two different New Yorks. And I come from one New York and Dasani's family comes from this other New York, but they are very much in communication constantly, um, living side by side. And I think what's really remarkable about Dasani's journey as a kid growing up in this setting is that she was able to reach for more, even though she had so many burdens uh, foisted upon her shoulders, that she could see this other world that was right in front of her and that she wanted it and she felt entitled to it. And she, the book follows her as she leaves New York City and goes to a boarding school and tries to escape poverty and uh, then has her loyalties tested deeply by problems at home and missing her family and ultimately chooses her family, which should surprise no one. But often in the narratives that we hear um, about people who have transcended poverty, the thing that is celebrated is the story of, of leaving, of departing, of going some other place, cutting ties and making it out. And I think what Dasani's story forces us to do is really ask ourselves, is that the only way? And what is our message to society when it comes to these the entire communities that a kid like Dasani is supposed to leave? Are we forgetting those communities? Are we saying that only a few people can succeed? I just think I, I, she really got me to think outside of the box about a number of things, including just how to define success and what does it mean to be happy and what should she be reaching for versus what society wanted her to reach for. So how do you think she got there? Like, how do you, at such a young age, have the inner compass to question how society defines success versus what that actually means for you, that alone is like, if we could all do that, mm. we would have such a different life experience. She got there, I would say, through hardship. Uh, she was sort of forced into the position of figuring out what was best for her. It's not. It wasn't an idea in her mind. At the, in the beginning, she was beholden to the same kinds of fantasy escapes that most kids have, especially children who are living in poverty. This is a world that's defined by extremes. So in Dasani's mind, it makes sense that in order to leave extreme poverty, you have to become extremely something else, whether it's famous, whether it's a rap star, whether it's a, an athlete, the typical kind of fantasies that kids have in their minds of how to get out. And what I saw as I followed her and, and, and her own development and evolution into a teen and then into an early to a young adult was that she, she started to see that that was a fantasy and that the success that she wanted for her life would require something very different, which was to leave her family behind, to stay the path in a really disciplined way in her boarding school to follow all of the rules, you know, to, to resist the urge to fight, to do, to do things differently than she had grown up doing them. 
And as she tried to do this, she really just missed the place she had come from and the people who made her feel whole. And I think that made her want to bring the new version or definition she had of success back home. I want to continue to work for what I want and to thrive and to transcend, but I want to do it in my own setting, in my own home and and with my family around me. I don't want to have to leave them in order to win. And so that's what she's doing now. She's in community college. She's living with her mom and two of her siblings, and she's trying to make it on, on her own terms. And it's not going to an Ivy League college. It's not living in a more middle-class setting and in a probably predominantly white context, which she also felt was very, very foreign to how she had grown up speaking and dressing. She didn't want to have to be this other person to quote unquote code switch, which is what she was being taught at this boarding school. She wanted the freedom to speak as she always had and not feel that there was anything wrong with that. She was very proud of her culture and her family. And to then have to to do it differently was sort of in a way telling herself that that other original culture was flawed and she needed to part with it. And she didn't believe that. She wanted to actually honor it. And so she talked about code switching. And I would love for you to explain code switching because, you know, when you talk about the relief that people got when you first did your New York Times series about Dasani, and please correct me if I got this wrong, but that there was like, there was an ability, like people could give, people could donate and and feel really good about sort of like, I can help one child, I can help one family, but that it's much harder to sort of get people to understand like the, the, the more systemic changes that we need, because it's just not as sexier of a give and it doesn't feel as personally connected and it doesn't relieve you in the same way. Mm-hmm. But I was so interested in like with part of that is also sort of the expectation that the receiver of this is going to have all these opportunities, but implicit is that, that like Dasani is going to have to be able to code switch so that she can fit in and, and assimilate to what is perceived as possibly sort of a more successful path. Sure. So from the time Dasani was in grade school, she would hear these examples around her of code switching, um, most powerfully from her brilliant teacher, fifth grade teacher, Faith Hester, sixth grade actually, who um, had gotten out of the projects in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, gone to college, gotten two master's degrees, and then come back to Brooklyn and was working as a teacher and was the most popular teacher at that school. She was just this absolutely electrifying force. And and one day she stood in front of the class and told the story of how she left at age 16 to go to college and pulled her orange suitcase all the way to the bus station because her parents wouldn't drive her because they were really afraid to lose her to this other world, to to the world where, as her neighbors would later say, she went to go act white, quote unquote. And she said, I'm here to tell you that you can say ain't. And you can say isn't. You can do both. And that doesn't mean you're less black for that or that you're trying to be white. You're learning to be in two different worlds. And so Faith Hester was constantly 
showing by her own example this version of code switching. So it was in Dasani's mind early, but she didn't really give it much thought until she left New York City herself to go to prominently white town, Hershey, Pennsylvania, to a boarding school that was created by the chocolate magnet Milton Hershey, who left his entire fortune to this school, which has the purpose of reforming children from poverty, of saving children, rescuing them from poverty. So to attend this boarding school, you have to be poor. And it's this kind of alternate universe uh, for these kids. They leave homes of poverty to come to a school where all of their needs are taken care of, where they're given full wardrobes, where they live in these little McMansions with a real married couple and 11 other kids per home. And these couples drive them to tutoring and ballet and soccer practice, and they go to a school with state-of-the-art equipment, and they just have every everything taken care of. And they're also taught to code switch. And there it is a more deliberate lesson in really trying to get these kids, help them navigate the new environment they're in and reconcile it with the environment they, they return to for holidays. That you you don't give up one linguistic or cultural mode for another. You just switch between them. And everyone this is what one of the teachers I heard teaching it said, which I actually found persuasive. Everyone code switches to a certain degree. Um, teenagers code switch. They talk in one way on their phones right. as they're texting and they talk to us in another way. You and I talk in a certain way <laughs> in this podcast and then we'll have a different voice when we're on the phone with our little kids or everyone code switches. So mm -hmm. the the code is what, you know, it matters here. And for Dasani to switch off the code of home, of street, of culture, of belonging, of her siblings who were not just siblings, they were her system of survival. Uh, her mother, who was like an extension of herself, they were so close. To switch that off felt like she was killing off a part of herself. And that's how she put it in her own words. And she she managed for a while and she learned to, quote unquote, as she put it to me, talk white, act white. You know, she just went along with it until things went very badly at home and her siblings wound up in foster care. And then I think she felt that is where all of her ideas of success came, uh, came apart. Because she she could feel this incredible guilt at being surrounded by all of this luck and material um, privilege, and at the same time feeling that her siblings, in her absence, were suffering, and the thing that she was supposed to switch off was them. She was leaving them for this better life, and she just she ultimately decided to get herself kicked out to go back to them and repatriate herself to her city and her and her family, because that was the only way she knew to stay whole. She felt that was the most authentic way to be her. And at the same time, though, you would you you might say, well, the story then from here, where does it end? Does it end with her dropping out of school, having a kid? Those are the things her mom did. No, it doesn't. She actually became the first in her family to graduate from high school, and she became the first in her family to enroll in college. So I would argue that Dasani's really trying, like many people do in 
poor communities to have it both ways, to, to stay rooted in what feels true and at the same time to reach for something better. And I, I, um, I definitely have come around to seeing, seeing success in a different way because of that. Like really, what is it re- really truly, what do we mean when we say we want our kids to succeed? I would like my kids to be happy and to feel at peace and to feel that they're leading lives of purpose. I did not see Dasani doing any of those things. Uh, towards the end of her time at Hershey. She wasn't at peace. She wasn't happy. And she wasn't feeling even able to see a greater purpose because she was so wrapped up in the trauma of what had happened to her family. And only by going home could she reconnect with the things that truly mattered to her. And so it looks like failure to many people from the outside. Oh, she's living in the Bronx in a poor community. And you know, she probably has greater exposure to things like violence, to other kids who don't make it all the way through college, to fewer job opportunities, but she's trying really hard and she wouldn't have it any other way, I don't think. That's at least what she's told me lately. <laughs> I think she feels that this is this is her path. And and she seems happy, you know? So and then there are many kids. I've heard of who wind up at places like, you know, at four-year colleges where they feel so disconnected and they don't have the resources that people from backgrounds of privilege have. And it's, none of these paths are easy, but I, I think that Dasani's chosen the best path for her. And I think that the, the reason why it's just something to think about is why does it make other people even uncomfortable with a decision that is still placing her at, if you're, if you're looking at markers of success, she's doing all the things that we could hope for. If we're thinking about finishing high school and going and rolling in college and getting like, she is doing so much. It's just that because the potential, like she could have probably written her way into whatever four-year college she wanted to. And we just have, like a more comfortable relationship with success stories that end with real outliers that are like the the star story. And exactly. I, it's and hard why? to and hear by the a way, story. It's why are we why are we more comfortable with that? This goes right back to the point you made earlier, which I thought was right. spot on. It's a relief. Because if that one kid could do it, then that's what it takes, right? It's the story we tell ourselves about America. If you have enough talent, if you have enough willpower. That's all it requires. And therefore, we can focus on the one who made it out and that kid's talents and feel good about the process and say we live in a meritocratic country. When we think about the 99% who didn't make it out, among them, Dasani, if you think about it geographically, she didn't, quote unquote, make it out, who are just as talented, just as capable, but for reasons that are obvious, just could not break through those barriers, then we are forced to reckon with broader systems that are hard to change. And yeah, we're saddled with it versus being relieved by the story that that lets us all off the hook in a sense. Emotional intelligence is obviously incredibly important to me because 
I'm a developmental psychologist. So I thought it was really cool when I learned about my feels, which is an emotional intelligence program for kids created by a mom and a clinical therapist. So it's backed by science, but practical. So we know that when you have an understanding of how you feel and you are able to recognize your emotions and the emotions of others, and you learn how to do self-talk when things aren't going your way and learn how to listen to your body and listen to those cues, you just have better self-regulation, empathy, and emotional intelligence. So visit emotionalintelligenceforkids.com for a limited time and get 50% off when you use the promo code humans at checkout. That's emotionalintelligenceforkids.com, promo code humans. And right now, go to emotionalintelligenceforkids.com to get 50% off with the promo code humans. Visit emotionalintelligenceforkids.com and use the promo code humans to get a limited time offer of 50% off the program exclusively for listeners of the Raising Good Humans podcast emotionalintelligenceforkids.com with the promo code humans. And now another word for my sponsor, Moon Juice. Getting to sleep is very hard these days. Getting regular sleep is hugely important and quickly being able to reach a state of calm after a kukaduku day is really easy because I take Magnesium by Moon Juice. It's a pink drink formulated with three forms of bioavailable magnesium and L-theanine to help with muscle relaxation, deep sleep, and healthy brain activity, and just a sense of calm. All things that we need and really deserve. Magnesium supplements on the market often only contain one form of magnesium, but Magnesium has three different forms and are all bioavailable, so it helps you fall asleep, stay asleep, and go to the bathroom in the morning, which is a nice little bonus. And the L-theanine promotes waves that your brain creates when you're in a deep meditative sleep. They call this meditation, you can sip. It does really give you an instant calm. It washes over you. You take your little nightly pink drink, get a good night's sleep, get a good morning bathroom, and boom, it's all good. And it's easy to mix. You just put it into water and it dissolves instantly. Your calm is your power. To find yours, go to moonjuice.com slash humans and use the code humans at checkout for 20% off. One thing I thought a lot about as a mother and but at the same time as a reporter in Dasani's world watching her mother struggle with the same issues the same longings the same frustrations that any parent has is how much we had in common and the more I felt I had in common with Dasani's mother the more shocked I would feel at certain moments when I realized how different our worlds were nonetheless just because of the fact that I have lighter skin color and a different educational background, I live in a different zip code, that my experience as a mother could be so radically different from hers, even though we were so similar in how we felt about our children. And so an example of that is I would wind up often with Chanel in the ER because that was medical care for her and her kids. And just to be, to clarify, Chanel is Dasani's Chanel mother. is Dasani's mother. So someone would have an asthma attack, Papa would get sick, or Dasani got food poisoning at one point. We were constantly in the ER. 
And early on, what I noticed about Chanel was she would get really nervous and tense and she wouldn't ask questions. She was almost in a defensive posture and yet her kid was in distress and we were there to get help. And I only after some time passed and I had enough exposure to this that I realized what was going on, which is that she was afraid that she would be blamed for what had happened to her kids, that she was on high alert in a sense, because if you are in a poor community and you're in the ER, you know that you risk being reported by mandated reporters, people who are mandated to report to Child Protective Services, any suspicions of neglect. I, as a mom, have a kid who's accident prone. She's a risk taker. And uh, she broke an elbow, skateboarding. She's broke her ankle at a trampoline park once. And her father and I were both reporters. We go right into the ER and boom, 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 asking all of our questions that neurotic parents ask when their kid is in trouble, right? You go in, you're the one asking the questions. And never in a million years would I have imagined that I was a person that prompted suspicion, right? I just, that was a blind spot that Chanel utterly relieved me of. It was like, oh my God, I I just took that totally for granted that I can march in there and I don't face this kind of, I mean, it's bad enough if your kid is sick enough that you're in the ER that you also feel this added terror that actually they can be taken away. And yeah, every bad thing that happened uh, in this family's story with respective child protective services began in hospitals with reports made by people in hospitals. I remember when my older daughter had to go to the emergency room because she broke her foot playing like roughhousing with her dad. And we had the same experience. So he called and he said, first, everybody's fine. Second, we're at the emergency room. So I went to the emergency room in New York City. And when we got there, it was pretty late. And there was no one else kind of waiting in the pediatric area, except for uh, an African-American family with, there were like three siblings and a mom. And I walked in and I have a hospital badge and I was, but this was a different hospital than the hospital where I work, but I still like walked in with the confidence of, you know, somebody who was entitled to the best care in the world. And I walked in and sort of had the same sense that you did of, here are my questions, you know, who's going to come over here and explain, you know, patient services to me. Like I was just on it. (laughs) And I saw that the family that was waiting with me that whole time, I was, we were treated much faster. We were not nervous to talk to anybody because there was no risk that that anybody was going to be interviewing. Like there's no social worker that came in to interview me at all. Of course. And, and it was such a crazy, like just sitting there watching this two, the two different families have very different experiences. I mean, that is structural racism playing out in front of you in real time. In real time. And the other thing that you mentioned that I think is just, and I know we have to wrap up. I just hope everybody just reads this book because- there's just no other way to to understand 
what what we're talking about here. But resilience is thrown around in a way that makes many folks in my field very just distraught Mm -hmm. because it's about, it's the capacity of a dynamic system to adapt successfully, but it's about a system and we always attribute it to an individual. And it's so unfair because the assumption is that the individual rises from the challenges because of their internal systems working in a, they're just, they are resilient. Like what is it about them that's so resilient? And Anne Mastin, who's a professor, um, a resilience professor and kind of the, the mother of all of this has this idea about ordinary magic, which is that in order to build resilience in children, the expectation is that it requires the right environments, it requires the right relationships, and it requires the right chances, the right opportunities. So you don't get to do any of that without a system in place. And yes, we can work on skills that support resilience, but only in the context of the environment that will be there for you and only in the context of relationships that help build those those skills and so it's such an it's it's such an extraordinary story in its ordinary magic that you can't like to me that relationship with Chanel that was what gave Dasani the capacity to make the decision the intentional decision to go back to where she felt at home and safe and and become you know the first in her family like you said to graduate from high school to go to community college like any of those things are still you know she was up against everything that would suggest she would not do accomplish any of that so just her capacity to know herself enough to figure out what is going to give her ease in her life and to make the choices despite everybody saying that's not the choice that a successful person with you, the opportunities you've been given would make. To me, that is, that's from the framework of the relationship that she had with her kind of primary attachment figure. But the world was set up in such a way where how can you expect any, any resilience to emerge? Like, it's not fair. And when we tell extraordinary stories of these you know, talented kids who come out because of this, you know, like their inner will to persevere it, the onus is now on the children in these circumstances to somehow like pick themselves up. And it's so frustrating and so blind. And again, that's not to take away from the, the parts of the individual that may have more capacity or a natural inclination to bounce back despite being pushed down, despite challenges. There is something to that, but that's like 5% of it. I think the word resilience is overused and it would drive me crazy, especially during the years that I was reporting with these kids and I would hear people say, oh, kids are so resilient, kids are so resilient. I started out today by reading that opening scene and in part because the resilience that I saw was actually a system of resilience. It was the family system that created that kind of survival that was so important 
to Dasani's well-being, to her sense of place in the world. And I think that that is what I would want people to take away from this book more than anything, is to see it as a book about the power of family and the power of sibling bonds and parent-child bonds. It's everything. It's the universe of Dasani's existence. My mentor used to always say resilience rests on relationships, full stop. So it's an, it's, it's high time everybody stops suggesting it rests on the individual. And it, it was those relationships. And I think you're absolutely, I mean, I mean, I didn't really realize this at the time, but I think capturing that the way you did, that's the important part of this story. Thank you. Thank you for listening and to read this beautiful book. You can go into my show notes where there is a link. 